We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Hamilton Today. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Just a trade-off of the Scots. It happens. Uh, Let me tell you what's coming up on the show because we have a jammed lineup for you today. Jammed. Absolutely monumentally squished. Like you cannot believe this is, uh, this show is taking all the topics and basically turning them into applesauce. It's going to be squeezed in so tightly today. Uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, housing, of course, housing just remains one of the biggest issues in the city, but there's a suggestion now that maybe we should return to a strategy of wartime housing. Would that work? I don't know if you remember, do you remember what wartime houses looked like in Hamilton and elsewhere? What if we did that? Just a ton of, not huge homes, just almost cookie cutter, but boom, 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 boom. Let's get them built and let's get them out there. And they're not that huge and they're not that fancy, but they get built. What do you think? We'll talk about that one this hour. We'll be chatting with Bill Briou. Uh, He is going to be at the Westdale Theater doing one of his latest talks on uh, the 1970s in TV. We may also talk this hour and later. I watched last night with my wife, a new documentary about Mr. Dress Up. It's on Amazon Prime. And if you are old enough to remember Mr. Now, Tom on the other side of the glass here, who's playing our music and everything today, I don't think Tom is going to resonate too much with Mr. Dress Up. He's too young a man. He won't remember Mr. Dress Up probably, at least not very well. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) But if you are of the generation that grew up with him or your children grew up with him. Let me tell you this. My wife was crying last night watching this. It was so well done and it was so emotional in parts and moving. It is an excellent, excellent documentary. You think it's Mr. Dress Up. What, what could be, it's a really well done. We'll talk about that one as well today. Uh, Maple Leafs open their season tonight. We'll get into that. As of October the 11th, the Toronto Maple Leafs are undefeated. So far, they are on pace to go undefeated this season. Now that could change. Yeah, Scott, knock a on few wood, hours a lot. From now. Knock on what? Knock on a lot of wood. I don't, I don't have any wood in here. All I've got is veneer. So I'll knock on veneer, but uh, yes, that could happen. Uh, speaking of houses, back to houses, the, you heard what happened, I'm sure with the tiny shelter program that has been squashed now on Strawn. Uh, so what happens? Do they try again? Do they look for a new place? What, what is the plan with the tiny homes program? We will get into that one today. Working from home, it has now become entirely commonplace, more than commonplace. It's almost expected now that if you're a worker, you will have an opportunity unless of course you're a surgeon, becomes very difficult to do surgery if you're working from home or a police officer, you know, unless there's a lot of crime in your basement, not easy to work from home. but. For many people, it's now become an expectation and yet there remains hesitancy apparently in a lot of corners about how this is going to go. Should there be? We'll, we'll dive into that one today. Do you remember the story from back in April about the giant gold heist at Pearson airport? Do you remember this story? A giant shipment of gold went missing. Someone drove in and stole it. Not someone, I'm sure it was a team. I have no doubt that this was a group of people, but, uh, what is the latest on that one and what is happening now? We will, we'll get to that. And, um, of course the one of, one of the big stories that is going on in the city right now and in this province and in this world, the situation in Israel with the terror attacks on the weekend has led to not only a war over there, which is vastly and enormously and not even comparably more massive than anything here, but it's also led to verbal jarring and comments and positions taken. And well, we have one of our local politicians right in the midst of a giant mess right now. Sarah Jama, the NDP MPP for Hamilton Center, um, posted a statement yesterday that even the leader of her party found unacceptable and asked that she take it down. Uh, it hadn't been taken down as of a few hours ago, at which point Premier Doug Ford stepped in and demanded that she resign. 
because it was outraged. By the way, I just looked here and um, the statement is still up. Uh, we're now waiting to see what's going to happen. We'll talk in the five o'clock hour about this story because how, how do you, if you are a member of a party and your boss, the leader of your party says, please do something and you ignore that request or demand or suggestion or whatever else you want to call it, how does the leader of that party not do something? That, that's, that's, we'll see. We're, we're, we're waiting on standby uh, to see if anything comes of this today because uh, it is a, it's a, it's a interesting situation that is brewing in Hamilton Center right now. Uh, your poll question, by the way, your Twitter poll question from, from, um, I don't even think this is the right one. I think we got the wrong one for today. I'm going to have to look up, sorry for this. I'm going to have to look up your Twitter poll question for today because I think I got yesterday's on my show sheet here. So I'll catch up with it. We'll get to you. We're still trying to, to differentiate between X and Twitter. And I think it's all getting confused. It, in the you back, know, in the it, it happens. It, it does happen. And so I will, uh, I will get your Twitter poll question in just a second here and we will tell you what it is. In the meantime, while I'm looking it up, just go to 900 CHML and just look up the Twitter poll, go on, on Twitter, by the way, that's, uh, that's where you would want to go. And, uh, oh, here it is. Here's our Twitter poll question for the day. It's okay. Do you think the Ontario NDP will remove Hamilton Center MPP Sarah Jama from caucus after her statement about the conflict in the Middle East? Yes or no? Very simple. Cast your vote, whether you think they will not, this isn't, do you think they should? That would be a different question altogether. Do you think they will remove her from caucus is the question. So go to Twitter, go to 900CHML and cast your vote there. Uh, we have got Hammerhead Trivia coming up later this hour, or not this hour, later today. We have got uh, tickets to go see the Hamilton Ticats up for grabs if you can win Hammerhead Trivia. That and much, 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 much more in a jam-packed Hamilton Today here on Hump Day in Hamilton, Ontario. Discussion about housing is certainly not new in this city. It's been going on for a while now. It has certainly been accelerating in recent months. The situation is becoming more urgent. And so solutions are being sought that would be urgent and that would be quick. And the unfortunate part is it's not really clear that there are quick answers. You, you can only build apartments or houses so fast. However, while that is absolutely true, there are now suggestions of a possible kind of solution to part of the issue. And that is go back to a plan that existed in the forties and fifties and early sixties and participate or get involved in what was known as a wartime housing situation, wartime housing plan where strawberry box houses, that's what they were called, or victory houses, a strawberry box because they looked like fruit crates when they were built. They are, um, you know, they are simple. They're small, they're bungalows or small two stories, but they are small homes, but at least they're homes. Is this something that we could do here that would get things moving in the right direction? Mike Collins-Williams is the CEO of the West End Home Builders Association who joins us now. Mike, thanks for the time today. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So the, the, the idea, I think, where people might look at this and go, eh, I don't know, is everybody, I think, has the vision in their mind of the kind of house that they would want, and it may not be this. On the other hand, though, something like this presumably could get an awful lot of homes built much more quickly than other plans, correct? Well, I don't know if we're going to go back to fruit boxes, but we certainly do need all hands on deck and and I appreciate the um you know the illustration of sort of that wartime effort that back after the second world war when veterans were returning it was all hands on deck and um the private sector uh, the federal government um there was a lot of cooperation and working together to build the necessary supply of housing that we needed at that time the idea though, and again, I mean, t there are homes that, you know, you're, you're the expert here, not me, but there are homes that take an awful long time to build. And there are other styles of homes that could be done more quickly. I guess the question is if we were to do the homes that could be built more cookie cutter and more quickly, is there a market for that? Do you think people would pay money for those homes? 
And we need a wide diversity of homes, uh, be it in Hamilton and, and across the country from coast to coast. We have, uh, you know, people at different stages of their life uh, need different types of housing, uh, be it a young person just starting out and, and you know, wanting a small apartment or a condo, you know, close to the center of the action in the middle of a city uh, or families, growing families that need space for kids. And, you know, we've got an aging society. So, so seniors as well. So there is no silver bullet. There's no one solution. It's really about that all hands on deck approach. We need the federal government, the provincial government and municipal governments to actually work together with the private sector and nonprofit sector to be able to deliver housing faster uh, and, and to be able to deliver that diversity of needs representing a, a modern Canada in 2023. One of the other challenges, as I understand it, is back at the end of the Second World War, not only did you have a lot of veterans returning home, that meant you had a lot of people looking for work. And so you could find a, a building crew to get this done. My understanding is right now in Ontario and all across Canada, we have a huge shortage in construction workers to build homes. I don't know if even if we thought this was a good idea that we could do it as fast as we would want. There's a massive shortage of skilled trades. So I encourage anybody listening, if you're young or if you have kids, to consider a career in construction. Um, there's lots of opportunities uh, in, in various different skilled trades. Um, but, you know, there is good news despite everything occurring and, and the lack of housing. Uh, you know, the federal government just made a huge announcement yesterday in the city of Hamilton uh, for $93.5 million to the city of Hamilton through the Housing Accelerator Fund that's designed to eliminate barriers to, to build more of the housing that we need and, and to support a number of initiatives in the city of Hamilton. There was an announcement a few weeks ago about eliminating the GST on purpose-built rental housing. So we're starting to see action. Now, does this translate to new housing tomorrow? Not necessarily. It does take time, but we're starting to see different levels of government starting to take this far more seriously. And, you know, at the end of the day, we just need to get shovels in the ground and get moving. Mike, one of the questions, and this has been part of the central issues around the whole Greenbelt discussion is about space within the urban boundary that we have right now. And often we hear, yes, there is space, but that is space for apartment buildings or condos or things like that. Is there significant room right now to still build houses, individual single family homes, or is that getting snug? There's very limited space within existing urban urban boundaries for, for single family homes. And, and, you know, we're not building as many single family homes as we used to in past decades. In fact, in 2022, I think it was a low point across Canada um, for as long as they've been recording data for decades in terms of single family homes being built um, and within existing city boundaries, uh, that is the opportunity for intensification, higher levels of density, which is what the federal government is, is pushing through this announcement. Um, but it is, it is a challenge. We need local politicians to stop dithering, stop delaying or obstructing and actually say yes to housing. There was a issue earlier this week in the city of Hamilton. It's, Mohawk and Upper Sherman, where uh, a developer has proposed 2,000 units right on rapid bus transit routes on an aging uh, mall. It's basically a series of parking lots that aren't being used. And, you know, the city wasn't able to make a decision. They're supposed to make a decision within 120 days, according to the Planning Act. And the developer had to appeal that after 291 days. So we desperately need housing. There's talk about intensification and density, um, but for local politicians, they're under a lot of pressure from existing residents to say no. We need to start saying yes. Yeah. Uh, you know what? The, we had, hmm, I think it was the mayor, although I could be wrong. I think it was the mayor who was on the show and, and a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. And the suggestion was that there are something like, it was either 32 or 37,000 homes, housing units. Uh, that we're in the system right now. The challenge with figuring that out is it's unclear what that means because uh, I guess a, a home could be in the system if someone has just put forward a plan all the way up to we're getting the building permits to break ground and build these things. It's That's a lot of homes that we're talking about. I just don't know how many that actually means are in process of being done. 
it is a lot of homes in the system, but planning approvals take a very long time and ultimately they do come down to a political vote. So some of those homes are very close to having building permits uh, pulled and the opportunity for construction and, and a family to live in those homes and other potential projects in the system are years and years and years away. Um, and, you know, given some of the skilled trades and construction shortages that we were speaking about earlier or interest rates, just because something is uh, in the system, a concept, an idea, a proposal doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get built. It has to be economically viable. Um, and this is where, you know, positive announcements like the federal government taking the GST off of purpose-built rental are helpful. We're in a difficult environment where we desperately need more housing, but in a lot of cases, the economics and numbers don't work because of the cost of labor, the high taxation on new housing, and and um, you know some of the other challenges getting through the politics around housing. That is Mike Collins Williams. He is the CEO of the West End Home Builders Association. I really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for this. Thank you. Have a fantastic evening. You as well. <laughs> Yeah, you know that song, don't you? Well, it's really a piece. Theme music. Mr. Dress Up, yeah. Uh, Bill Briou is a good friend of ours. He is a TV critic, TV writer, pop culture writer. Uh, you can find all of his stuff on Briou, B-R-I-O-U-X, Briou.tv, which is a fantastic place to go for all kinds of good things. Uh, joins us now. Bill, how are you today? Good well, Scott, how are you? I am good. I want to talk to you about uh, what you're doing in Hamilton, uh, coming up. But before we get there, that music from Mr. Dress Up, my wife and I watched the new documentary on uh, Amazon Prime last night about him. And I got to tell you, I went into it with reasonably low expectations and it was blown away. It was fantastic. Yeah. It's a beautiful Valentine to a lost uh, time of children's programming and uh, just Ernie Coombs, who was so special. For 30 years, he was Mr. Dress Up. He raised a couple of generations of us and uh, Canadians coast to coast. Uh, you know, you can tell the citizenship test should just be, who are Casey and Finnegan? Yes. You know, and everybody could hopefully over 30 knows the answer. One of the funny things though, when you say that about his citizenship test, I didn't realize, and maybe I should have, he didn't become a Canadian citizen until very late in his life. He was an American who actually... He came here, this is a bizarre part of the story. He came to Canada with Mr. Rogers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was from Maine and, uh, there was a, a CBC had a children's department sort of before anybody back in the day. And the guy there who was running the children's department, he, he actually brought three Americans North, Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers, and then Ernie Coombs, and also Bob Ome, who was the, uh, I mean, who was the friendly giant. All of these, we think, Canadian icons, two of them anyway, but they were really American-born. And uh, Mr. Rogers, he launched his series. The first two years, there was a show called Mr. Rogers, All One Word, and it was Fred Rogers with the puppeteer being Ernie Coombs, and that played before Mr. Dressup. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. I knew there was a connection there. I always knew that they were connected, but I didn't realize how close they were and that essentially it was Mr. Rogers deciding to go back to the States after a couple of years and the CBC being sort of stuck. And Fred Rogers said, well, you've got a guy right here, Ernie Coombs. He's your guy. Give yeah. him a, give him a show. And there's the beginning of Mr. Dress. Knew none of this stuff. It was amazing. Yeah. No, the documentary is full of nuggets like that. You learn an awful lot about the puppeteer, Judith Lawrence, behind Casey and Finnegan, also not Canadian. She was Australian born. And uh, just uh, how it all came together, there's a lot of talking heads, a lot of people who were influenced by Michael J. Fox, you hear him yes. on uh, Fred Rogers, and also uh, Eric McCormick. Eric and his wife, they named their son Finnegan. Yes. So that's how big a fan he was of Mr. Dressup. Yeah. And I believe in this, I don't think it was on unless I, I, I'm sure I didn't drift off at any point, even though we were watching it late last night, but uh, I believe that the woman who was on the big comfy couch appear, her first TV appearance may have been on Mr. Dress Up as well. So all these connections with right, Canadian yeah. TV and these people who got their start and everything else. Anyway, it's, um, that, that's, uh, if you have, uh, Amazon prime, 
well, well, well worth your time. And, and especially if you are of that era, if you're younger, you may not get it, but if you're of that era, well worth your time. All right. Speaking of, of the era, you are going to be back in Hamilton. You've been doing a series of these, but you're going to be back in Hamilton on the 14th. So that would be Saturday, Saturday. Yeah. and yes. the 18th at the Westdale Theatre talking about old TV. Right now, we've done some other ones, but now 1977 and 1978 on TV. And for those who don't remember 77 and 78, <laughs> Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, um, those are two big ones. And then as well described, Jiggle TV, Three's Company, Charlie's Angels, Battle of the Network Stars. Apparently it was, uh, take off the bra and go on TV time. And they did very well with that. Yeah. Who knew that that's all you had to do. <laughs> and, uh, my, you never did that on Mr. Dress Up. That was Mr. Well, Undress I, recall. Up, I guess. But, but, um, yeah, it's a fascinating time. You know, we look back on it and, um, so much fun doing these shows. They're really, uh, retro TV parties that we're throwing at the Westdale. We got great trivia prizes and the crowds we got out for the first couple of screenings last month. Boy, they were starving for this stuff. They just love talking about it. I took so many questions about early TV and people, so many people just have cherished me memories of growing up with these people. And, uh, yeah, 1977, 78, these are two 16 millimeter fall preview reels. They're projected on the big screen. And uh, you'll see, as you mentioned, Charlie's Angels, Battle of the Network Stars, Happy Days, all those Gary Marshall shows, you know, uh, Mork and Mindy and uh, Happy Days, of course, were already there. But uh, Laverne and Shirley, that was the number one show in North America in 1977. And let's, uh, some of the other ones, and I just going down here because I didn't even get to the, uh, some of the highlights. So also, uh, Barney Miller, Welcome Back, Cotter, uh, Taxi, yeah. Eight is Enough, Fantasy Island, Vegas, Love Boat in 1977. I mean, I love... I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this without sounding like a complete and utter dork, uh, but the love boat still works for me. It's, it's <laughs> cheesy and schmaltzy and stupid and idiotic, but anytime it comes on, I somehow find myself still watching. Well, it's fascinating because you see all of these famous guest stars, uh, that was the whole premise of the show that, and you know, fantasy Island. It was just an excuse to put Buddy and Sally back together from the <laughs> Dick Van Dyke show as passengers on the love boat or people from, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, uh, you know, a lot of famous actors, Tom Hanks was on yes. an episode of the love boat. Uh, so yeah, we learned that how that started, but there was, there's all the bombs too, Scott, uh, who's remembers operation petticoat, you know, is that anything to do a, with petticoat junction? Well, nothing to do with that. It was about a submarine Oh, and, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, the, the yes. Oscar winner from last year. She is uh, one of the young stars of Operation Petticoat. So, you, you know, that's what happened back then. Four of the five shows would get canceled every year. So you see a lot of bombs, too. But amongst them, ABC in those two seasons were number one. And uh, that was a breakthrough for them because up until then, it was all CBS, all NBC. I, I got to say, when I look at the list, though, of shows that started around then or were big then with, again, you like go through that list and we don't even have to go through them all again. Do we have the same, I mean, obviously we have more than three networks now. So are there as many shows that work now? They're just so spread out all over the place that we don't realize, or was that really a golden age for television? Well, this is the thing that I think is fun about these screenings. It's really, I tell people, think of this theater as a time machine. Yeah, we're really going back to an era when there really was only three networks. You know, PBS had by this point had come along. But there was no HBO, there was no cable, there was certainly no streaming uh, choices. So, uh, you know, generally you saw Charlie's Angels, you saw, oh, yeah. um, you know, Three's Company, you knew all these people well because there weren't as many options. So you would get 30 million people watching Happy Days. And uh, yeah, everybody knew who the captain of the love boat was. And uh, it was uh, just a different time that uh, back then, for sure. It was a different time. We need more Charlie's Angels. Uh, somehow I think in 2023, I'm not sure that kind of show would get greenlit anymore, at least not on broadcast television, maybe on some cable channel and it wouldn't be quite the same, but. Um, well, they're, they're rebooting Frasier. They're rebooting yeah. you know, so many shows. So don't rule it out. I wouldn't be surprised. We shall see. I think it might be handled slightly differently. A lot more cases not solved in bikinis. Yeah, would be my guess. I, again, Scott, come on out. It's going to be fun. They're matinee shows, one o'clock at the beautiful Westdale. 
And if you can hum the theme to Love Boat or you know who wrote it or sang it, uh, you'll want to be there to win some pretty cool prizes. We got Paramount Plus subscriptions, all kinds of good stuff. Mm. So I hope people come out and have a good time. Saturday and next Wednesday. And yes, we can hum the law. Let's all do it. Mm, no, what do we know? <laughs> uh, and I, I can't, who did sing it? I can't remember. Okay. Jack Jones there you was go. the singer. And yeah. he appeared on Love Boat at one time. I know he was a guest star singing on that show. So there you go. Uh, Everybody that is, was. That's yeah. true. Bill Brew, always appreciate you doing this. Thank you. My pleasure, Scott. Well, we'll see who likes hockey. When the Maple Leafs kick off their new season, everybody who's a Leaf fan likes hockey until the puck drops and they lose a couple in a row. <laughs> and then there is less fondness, it seems, for hockey. Kevin McGran writes for the Toronto Star, covers the Maple Leafs, joins us now. Kevin, how are you today? I'm excellent. What's going on? Well, uh, everyone's excellent who's a Leaf fan right now. I mean, it's uh, they're on pace for an undefeated season, so this is this is a good thing. Now we'll see what... Uh, what happens later, but Kevin, here, here's the thing. Does anybody who is a real diehard Leaf fan, who's been a Leaf fan for a while, do they really care what happens in the regular season this year? Or does everyone just want to get into a time machine and fast forward to April? Well, I'll tell you, I was doing an event today at, at, uh, with, uh, with the Leafs, uh, just doing some interviews with some, uh, front office types. And they looked at me and said, are, are you, uh, are you happy the preseason's over? And I said, preseason is not over. It's just beginning. The real season begins in April. So, like, nobody – we do care what happens to this team, how good they are and how they change and how they grow and what records they might set. But, yes, with this team, it's, it's kind of weird. We, we don't – you know, this team's in the playoffs. How high up are they going to finish? And uh, how are they going to do in the playoffs? It's really all anybody cares about at this point with this team. And that speaks to how far it's come because I spent – 10 of 11 years covering a team that wasn't making the playoffs. That's true. And now it seems like the playoffs are just a given. Yeah, it, it does seem though that people are having to hold back on some of their excitement. I mean, like if Austin Matthews got 70 goals this year, that would be great. But how, what are you doing in the first and second round of the playoffs is all we really care about. Well, that that's sort of the thing. Those, those records sort of tie the season over, right? So like Austin's March to 60 a couple of years ago was a pretty good, was a pretty good thing to keep people's interest. Last year, Mitch Marner went on a couple of uh, really long um, uh, point streaks. I think he got to 25 games, which is one of the longest in the salary cap era. So that was, that kept interest going, but just, you know, last year I, I found the interest in the team was, just took a step back because people were just waiting to see what happens in the playoffs. You're, you're absolutely right. I, I don't think, I think that's a real thing in this market. Um, the I, interest in the lease is always there, but I think the excitement level for the team uh, doesn't really begin until the playoffs begin. And then that's just doubled up with anxiety. And all that's of, yeah, that's a, mental health that's, issues. that's a great word, Kevin, anxiety, because that, that's the other thing. I think that even if the Leafs litter, and I was joking, obviously, but if the Leafs went undefeated this year, if they won the president's cup and didn't lose a game, I really believe Leaf fans would still come playoff time, be sitting there waiting, going, all right, when, when's the anvil going to fall on my head? Like on the road runner, like this is just, it's inevitable that something bad is going to happen. It's a weird thing to be a fan of a team always expecting the worst. Yeah, there, there are some strange fan bases out there. I know, I know a lot of New York area fans, they love their Rangers or they love their Yankees, but they love them so much they hate them. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I think, I think Blue Jays fans sort of experienced that this year. This was, this was a, an interesting year to be a Blue Jays fan because you kind of hated the team. They weren't doing what you wanted them to do. They still made the playoffs, but they didn't do anything. Um, yeah, sometimes you love a team so much you hate them. So who is, now many of the guys who are coming back and we're short on time, I wish we had a lot more. Many of the guys coming back are the same guys. That was a big storyline coming out of last year that after another failure, we're going to clean house and then clean house meant just the GM got gone pretty much. But who of the either new guys or returning guys, who has, who is of the most intrigue to you of how this, even though it's regular season of how they're going to do? Uh, well, I guess, um, the new guys are sort of intriguing. Um, is Tyler Bertuzzi going to fit in on the top line? I mean, uh, uh, Nick Ritchie didn't. Um, 
And so it, it, it's, not, it's not that easy to fit in with Marner and Matthews. They're so talented. So you've got to make sure that works. Uh, Max Domi is an interesting one, partly because of his dad, partly because of the kind of player he is. So they've got a second line with Tavares and, and Nylander that can score. But really, who's going to play defense there? Um, Fraser Minton's the feel-good story of, of yep. the offseason. And if he's, a, if he's the real deal then this team has gotten a lot deeper, a lot faster than anybody could have expected. Um, and I think the, the wild card is kind of John Klingberg. He's sort of the one that nobody really, they, they didn't really need a, a scoring defenseman, but they went out and got one. They needed like a, a big body, a, a, a guy that can push people around and stick up for their teammates. And, and, and they got, you know, a, a sort of a, a, I guess a higher level right-handed Morgan Riley, but that was the least of their concerns. They have those guys. They they don't have a big banger on the blue line. So how is that going to work? Well, didn't um, they do this once before? We got to run here, but didn't they do this one? They traded Nazem Kadri for uh, for uh, Tyson Berry, who was, I mean, not exactly the same guy, but same kind of idea, and that didn't work out even remotely. Yeah, uh, unless you consider that Alex Kerfoot gave him a couple of years at a cheaper sal- uh, salary cap number. Yeah, that. There, there are there are weird moves. That was a weird trade. Uh, this was a free agent signing. Like right. they're picking the litter, and or uh, it wasn't a great free agent year, but still they ended up with a player who's kind of betting on himself, looking for a long term deal to, to put up some points. But he's not exactly the kind of player that they they really needed. Uh, just before we let you go, uh, I know who's going to be starting in net tonight. At least I assume so. Ilya Samsonov. Who's going to be starting in net? when the playoffs roll around? Cause there's three options now and I'm not convinced it's him. Who do you think? I think it's going to be Joe wall. I, I, I really, really high on Joe wall. I haven't been as high on a least drafted and developed goalie perhaps ever. <laughs> they don't really do a very good job of that organizationally. And uh, this kid has really, really impressed me. And I think if he is given any sort of, of uh, foothold on the job, like if Ilya struggles or if he gets hurt, Joe Wall is going to run with that job, and he I, he has a chance to be a franchise goaltender. That's mm. you know I know he's 25, he's coming to the game late, sort of, and he's had his own injury issues. That's a lot to put on the kid. We will but see. I, I think, yeah, I think the world of them. Uh, Canadians and the Maple Leafs tonight at seven. Season kicks off. That is Kevin McGran. You can read him in the Toronto Star. Really appreciate it, Kevin. Thanks for the time today. My my pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been talking about housing on the station here for months and months and months now, but one of the stories that um, is has been problematic, quite honestly, has been the story of Hats, the tiny home pilot that was supposed to be on Strawn and met with resistance and now is not going to be there. And when I say confounding and I say di- difficult, it's because I, I think it is very possible to think that the idea behind the tiny homes is one worth trying for sure. I, I'm in that camp. I think it should be tried. I just think the city, not hats, I think the city handled this whole thing poorly. And now the question is, well, now that this thing has gone awry and is no longer going to happen, what is going to be the future of tiny homes and of hats? Dan Bedness is the board chair and board of directors for the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, joins me now. Dan, how are you today? I'm well, Scott. Thanks for having me, by the way. I, I Listen, I'm so glad you could come on because um, I, I've said on here a number of times, I think that the program as a concept is a good one to try. I really do. It's a question of where it goes and how it gets done. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but, you know, going to that first meeting at Benetto School and hearing the questions and you answering about, you know, how few of the criteria that site met for you that was on your list. Do you, do you feel that I do that you kind of got hung out to dry on that one by the city? Uh, uh, Not really. Uh, You know what, uh, it, perhaps the approach was not appropriate, but I honestly feel that the city was trying to partner and was going with good intentions. And they were trying to find a site before the winter that was technically feasible. And they didn't look perhaps at the holistic view, which is really our uh, one of the things we 
want to do. And what, what we actually did, it just took a long amount of time to get there. And from an implementation standpoint, Scott, the feasibility was compromised by timeline delays resulting from an extended outreach effort that we felt had to be done. And it was the responsible thing to do. And we've done that before. As you know, we had a previous site and we made what we feel was a responsible decision. And we feel the same here on Strawn. We made the right decision. There are a number of factors that accumulate and come into play, but fundamentally we had to be fiscally uh, responsible to our donors, to uh, to everyone. And it was a stressful time mm. for everybody at city, um, and importantly, the, the community at large, uh, the North Enders, and ourselves. It was very stressful. I don't, um, I don't doubt that having gone, as I say, to that first meeting, you, you got some rough treatment. There's no question. And I don't, I think that was on, I think that was unwarranted. This had nothing, I mean, it had something to do with you, but not, you were not the one who should have been the target is my point. That said, what, if anything, what from this experience did you get about how important or not it is that the community, wherever the neighborhood, wherever this may end up, should be consulted and talked to before any kind of plan is put into place? Without question, without question. That is our our forte. We we want to talk to individuals in the community um, and listen. Um, when we're at the only the candidate site um, time frame, in other words, not after a site is selected, but when a, a site is being considered, we're going to reach out as we did uh, on the Earl Street um, uh, location, and that was a private location, mm. but we still felt obligated to have two sessions. I think the good thing here, Scott, is we've also rounded out our outreach program to include a newsletters, to include a Facebook group, in addition to having the large forums, we've got the small forums. So we've rounded out the outreach program for sure. And by the way, I want to compliment you on talking about the tiny homes program. It's not just placing a house on a on mm. a lot. It, it's, it's much more than that. One of the, um, a number of months ago I talked to, and I, I forgive me, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he was uh, involved in this program, I think from Kitchener, uh, or Waterloo. And one of the points that he made at the time was many of the people who might be candidates for this don't want their tiny home or their living position right in the downtown. Many of the temptations that have got them in difficulties are right there and they would prefer to be a bit of a distance away from the downtown. However, it seemed up to this point that those who are choosing locations want to put this close to the downtown. Is if somebody was to come forward and say, look, Dan, we, we'd like to put something, but it might be 20 minutes away from the downtown. Would you be amenable to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not um, contained to um, wards one, two, and three. This is, this is uh, opportunities um, that go beyond there. But the suggestion is the reason it has to be there is because the social services are there and therefore we must put it near the social services. There are, there are means to overcoming uh, the access um, challenges that social services may have. And so um, we are open to uh, a variety of um, locations. And we only have a minute, but last thing then, um, we have talked uh, about the, the tiny homes project that is in Waterloo. It's on, it's out in a field, basically. It's way out in the middle of almost nowhere, but it seems to be something that is working. Maybe, maybe they would say otherwise, but it seems to be something that's working. Is that a model that you could see yourself looking into? Um, absolutely. Um, we've, we've talked about that as extending the range, um, for sure. Um, they're at the end of a transit line and, you know, they have a means by which to access the transit. So, um, there are alternatives and uh, there are more than just one criteria that dictates a particular site selection. So there's a multitude. And um, so we've got to look at all avenues and we're very, we're very charged right now to doing additional searches with our uh, strong advocates and partners as, as we speak. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again, but uh, Dan Bettis, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thank you. 
More than welcome. Thank you. Uh, that is Dan Bednis. He is the chair of the board of directors for the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters. We'll see where that goes. I, I, this project is not going to go away, this idea. And as I say, even if you don't want it in your neighborhood, and I, I can understand that if there's no consultation, but even if you don't, I think there is value in trying this somewhere and seeing if it works. I absolutely believe that there is value in trying it. Let's see where we can find to do it though, that everybody or almost everybody can be okay with. <laughs> Earlier today, I could have very easily been working from home. I could even be doing this show from home. We now have that technology and that is not unusual. If you look around most jobs now, most, certainly not people who have to, nurses, for example, you can't nurse from home or you know, things that are hands-on to be a mechanic. Well, I suppose you could have a garage in your house, but you know, there are jobs you can't, but many people are now and have been and are still working from home. Uh, a new survey has found 55% of Canadian business leaders, only 55% believe that there is a day coming when staff are going to return to the office full-time. And I think that 55% is optimistic. I think it's a lot less, it should be a lot less than that. Cause I think the chances of the day coming when we will all be back in the office every day as we once were, I don't think there's a chance in the world of that happening, but let's find out what my next guest thinks. He is Dr. Ian Lee, associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Dr. Lee, thank you for the time today. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, what's your thought? Any chance? What 55% say they think the day is coming when that'll be back to normal. What do you think the chances of the usual five day work week in the office returning? I think it's extremely uh, unlikely. I, I'm not suggesting that there won't be some people returning, but if the question I think you meant, are we going to go back to as it was before exactly. pandemic? And the answer I think is a clear no. And I've looked at the data from cities across the U.S., major cities, and Canada, Toronto, Vancouver, Ottawa, and there is no evidence that it's going to return to what it was before. If you use transportation numbers on the mass transit system as a proxy, which isn't perfect, but it's not bad, I'll just use Ottawa because I'm from Ottawa and I know Ottawa best, and uh, they've lost about a third compared to the pandemic, before the pandemic, a third of their customers, a third of the volume taking the transit system in Ottawa has vanished. They're, they're running hemorrhaging, by the way, huge deficits. And this is going on in cities across the U.S. and Canada. Moreover, when you look at the, the, all the articles in the business media, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Globe and Mail, and so forth, the commercial high-rise building segment of the investment real estate business is, is in very bad shape in Toronto, in tr New York, in, in major cities across Canada and the States. And that's because fewer and fewer people are going back to work. And a lot of companies and nonprofits are trying to dump real estate. And the vacancy rates are running right now in uh, class B, it's running about 15% in Ottawa. And even that number is disguised in, in many cities because nobody can dump their leases. So they're showing as being used when they're just sitting there right. empty. The vacancy rate are people who have actually been able to get out of their lease because they haven't, or their lease has come to an end and they haven't renewed it. Okay, so, so everybody understands what that number is. This is actual empty office space. So the well, number's much higher because there's lots and lots of businesses who are paying for it because they have a lease and they have to pay for it, but they're it because people aren't going to work. So the fact that you, you've cited two things that are problematic, certainly, uh, public transit taking a huge hit because people don't need yes. to commute. That's a problem. And yes. businesses, and you talk about leases and empty office space, but leaving those aside, if you are an employer and if you can leave those things aside, is there any yeah. reason that you should want everybody back in the office these days? Or have we learned that people can be equally productive at home? You've asked an incredibly important question. And I'm going to be very, very frank and honest with you because I've been looking as, at, at as many studies as I can get my hands on. So I'm not trying to tell you or your listeners there's an absolutely definitive answer to that question. These I'm reading are mixed. 
Some are saying that people that work at home are not as productive. And some other studies done by very good qualified, you know, analysts and so forth are saying the opposite. I suspect, and there's a reason for this, and I'm not suggesting somebody is cooking the books or doing bad studies. The the knowledge work, the phrase knowledge worker is so broad. It can include a lawyer working at home. It can include a professor like me working at home, preparing my lectures at home. It can uh, include a sales rep uh, creating the budget at home. It can include an accountant. I mean, it includes a huge number of people. And some jobs are uniquely solitary. Like, you know, being a professor, I don't sit beside another professor creating my lectures. It is very solitary. I won't use the word lonely and get into that because I don't think it is, but it's solitary. I do it on my own. I've always done my lectures on my own. That applies to school teachers. That applies to high school teachers. It applies to professors, college instructors, and so forth. There's some jobs you do. I can see in a being in a marketing company where you work collaboratively, literally side by side. They're knowledge workers. Then there's other jobs where you don't work with anybody. You just work on your own. And so what I'm trying to say is I think this explains why or accounts for the fact that we're getting different answers. Some people are saying that working at home is more productive and some are saying the opposite. I think it depends on the type of job you do. If you are doing a job where you only work by yourself, whether you're in the office, you're sitting there and you're engaged with that computer screen and you're not working and talking and interacting with anybody else, that job is probably more productive at home. But any job where you're working with data on a screen, for example, or monitor, and but you're also referring back and forth iteratively in the office, you're saying, hey, Joe, we're across the office there. What do you think of this? And, and I think those jobs probably are not as productive at home uh, working in a solitary way. So, but I, what I'm suggesting, Scott, is I think there's a lot of the jobs, not all of the jobs, maybe a half of the knowledge workers. Not all of them, but maybe a half of them are just as productive or more working at home. And they're going to continue working at home because those people, those employees are going to realize that they're, well, they already know this. There's very significant savings to working at home, not just the obvious commute time, but the, you know, the cost buying a lunch every day at a cafeteria, you know, and, uh, and of course the cost of the time, you know, to get to work and back and more and more workers are aware of that. And they're saying, you know what, my quality of life is better at home and I'm just as productive or, uh, at home or more. So those are the ones who are going to fight to stay working yeah. at home. And there's a job shortage out there of skilled workers. So employers are, on the one hand, they want them to come back to work because they, you know, it's better to have everybody in the office where you can all interact and you can see everybody. On the other hand, they don't want to alienate some workers who say, you know what, I'm going to quit your company because you're insisting I come to work when I can go down to your competitor down the street who's allowing me to work from home. And there are companies out there, anecdotal stories of companies using that as their hiring advantage. They're saying, come and work for us. We'll let you work from home. So companies have to be very careful not to be too hard line about saying you got to all come back to work because you may lose some of your workers. Yeah. And we got to run. But uh, one of the other things I always wonder, we don't have time to get into this right now, is if you are a boss, is it difficult to treat different people differently by allowing someone who's very productive at home to stay at home and tell someone else to come back? Is it just not easier to say everybody's got to come back? Exactly. Uh, I wish exactly. we had more time on that one, but uh, that is Dr. Ian Lee. We'll talk about that next time. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton. Thanks for the time as always. Thanks a lot. You may remember back in April, there was a just crazy, bizarre story at Pearson Airport where $20 million in cash and gold in a box, in a crate, went missing. It had been delivered apparently to the airport and then poof, was gone and nobody seemed to know where it went. Well, uh, the, a US-based security company is now suing Air Canada over this. Brinks, in fact, is suing Air Canada. And here's what it says happened, or here's a, at least the, uh, the outline of the story as we believe it, or as they claim that it happened, is that the flight landed with this thing at, in the afternoon. This, this five or six square meter or square foot box with all this stuff, gold and cash in it was put into a warehouse. And then a couple hours later, an unidentified person came in with a fraudulent waybill 
And somehow, according to the lawsuit, this box was just released to them and they walked out with $20 million. Uh, as I say, it is, uh, it is a bit of a wild story. Ari Goldkind is a Toronto criminal lawyer and a legal expert media commentator joins us now. Ari, how are you today? Great to be on with you. Uh, great for you to be here. Um, this, if, if this is remotely what happened, if this version of the story is remotely what happened, that somebody just came up with a fake way bill, walked in and someone said, here you go, take $20 million and walk out. I'm no legal expert that, but that would sound like it is a pretty good cause for a case. Well, you don't have to be a legal expert in so many of the things you and I talk about. Sometimes common sense is all you need and a law school degree gets in the way. So let's just break this down for two seconds. First of all, from a civil lawsuit point of view, Brinks, which obviously has its own insurance carrier and is out for a big, big chunk of change, obviously wants to bring in other people in case Brinks ends up on the hook, which they are as of right now, quite possibly, for the loss from this overseas shipment. So the more deep pockets you can bring in, such as Air Canada, and obviously Air Canada's insurer, you would simply do that as a civil litigation lawyer. You'd be probably uh, remiss to not do that. So not too much should be read into it. The more interesting aspect to me from a legal point of view, and I'll take your audience back probably to a movie that they all should watch if they haven't, and if you haven't, it's because you're too young and don't know good movies called Goodfellas. <laughs> and, okay. if you, and I think you probably know where I'm going. So in Goodfellas, this was basically the central plot of the entire movie. It's called the Lufthansa Heist. And it was basically all about what an inside job this is. That this sort of thing does not happen without planning, opportunity, means, motive. And to hear that somebody in a relatively unsecure part of the airport structure goes in with a fake waybill. We all know what a waybill is. We've seen them on Purolator Courier, uh, things that we send or FedEx. That, to me, is the part of the story that seems completely unanswered for yet. I know the police are still looking into it. But really, for people who want to watch a great movie, not most of the dreck that's made now, this is literally a good half hour or 45 minutes of Goodfellas. And to me, as soon as I saw this story, I thought to myself, oh, this is the sequel. Okay. So the, the part of the other part of the story though, that I wonder about legally is if I get onto an airplane, one of the things you will hear an announcement in the airport all the time is don't let someone else handle your bag. You are responsible for your bag. Now they're not talking about it being stolen. They're talking about if someone were to slip a weapon or worse in there, you're responsible for it. However, if Brinks is the company that was hired to look after this money, it put the item onto the plane. Are they ultimately responsible to make sure they are guarding this until that is picked up by the appropriate person? Or can they say, no, we put this in trust of the airline or the airport and therefore we're off the hook. And that's a great question, which is why so much of this is unknown. And there is some reporting now that this package or something that happened took place in a relatively unsecure part of the airport, or there was some kind of public access to it. Remember, they're not revealing who the mystery person is. Right. So, you know, that's why Brinks is doing what they're doing, but that is a question that police must answer. Now, here's the part that I'm sure occurred to you, which is, can you imagine, and by the way, you're right about packing your own bags. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Do you know how many importing of drugs cases I do into Pearson Airport? Most busy criminal lawyers will tell you that's a heck of a business. It's a very busy airport for importing. And the first thing that people will say when they get caught is, oh, I didn't pack my bag. So your point has some humor and levity to it. But what's amazing to me in this case is can you think of a facility or a building that would have more video surveillance than possibly Pearson Airport? I can't. So the idea that somebody is uncaught or they haven't solved this yet is deeply mysterious to me. What is it like the born identity where <laughs> yeah, all of Ocean's the Eleven, yeah. Right, right. Or Ocean's Eleven where they just happen to go through the alleyway that just happens to have the cameras cut. Then you can add a little sprinkling of the movie Heat where Val Kilmer's up on the telephone pole. That's why so much of this is interesting to me 
because it is an unsolved crime, and we're not talking about a field in the middle of Moose Jaw. We are talking a major international airport. Yeah, and that's and we got to run. Unfortunately, I wish we had a lot more time already to talk about this. But that's that's one of the things. So yeah, you could say okay, Brinks should be looking after their own stuff. You could should you could say Air Canada should be looking after their own stuff, or you could say look, someone stole this, and neither one should be sued until we find the person who did this. Uh, it is just it's such an unbelievably bizarre, as you say, movie situation story that you just never imagined could really happen. But here we are. There's a real. Ocean's Eleven. There's a real, as you say, born. The punchline to the story, as it often is, is it's bad for Brinks, but it's very good for lawyers. And that in and of itself is a conversation probably for a different day. And I, and we got to go, but I also don't understand how surely this gold was marked in some way. Now, unless they melted it down, how it doesn't, someone's got to do something with this, or maybe they're just waiting it out. Who knows? And you're back to the movie Heat. That's the fence. So that's John Voigt. So there's your movie references <laughs> today. All right, Goldkind, Toronto lawyer and movie critic. Uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Good to be with you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I think any person with any kind of human decency would acknowledge is that what happened on the weekend with the terror attack in Israel is an abomination. Uh, all the stories coming out of there are just atrocious. There are, I've been watching CNN veteran war correspondents almost choking up describing what they've seen. It's, it's truly awful. So unsurprisingly, when certain politicians make comments that don't denounce this or look like they are playing both sides or being soft on it, there is going to be anger. Well, in the midst of all this, Hamilton uh, Center MPP Sarah Jama released a statement on social media yesterday on NDP letterhead in which she called for a ceasefire and described the situation in the Gaza Strip as apartheid and said that Israel should end all occupation. No denunciation of Hamas in that note. Well, that of course has led to all kinds of outrage. Doug Ford earlier today said that she should resign. Other groups have said she should resign. Last night, Merritt Stiles, leader of the NDP, her party leader, said she should be taking this statement down and falling in line with party positions. Hasn't happened. And in fact, recently within the last hour, hour and a half or so, Merritt Stiles, the leader of the NDP has now said, well, we've talked about it and, um, you know, we understand each other better and she's going to stay on. Let me bring in Colin DeMello, who is a global news, Queens Park Bureau chief. Colin, how are you today? Hey, good afternoon. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, I just, I, I'm just sort of surprised to begin with that I think she is the least senior MPP in the entire legislature because she won a by-election not that long ago. I'm just surprised that someone in that position would want to get into this and would think that the entire world was waiting to hear what she would think because it would seem that's only going to, especially if she doesn't have the party's permission, it can only go badly, can't it? Well, I mean, it doesn't quite surprise me that Sarah Jama would wade into the debate. I think she is the, uh, you know, I think she very much sees herself as an activist and sees herself as being able to use her role and position as an MPP to, you know, speak truth to power and speak up about something that she's passionate about. The NDP uh, kind of suggested today that she might have family who are Palestinian, which is why this might be striking so deeply uh, with her. But I think at, at, at this moment, as you mentioned, right, as, as the world is trying to day by day come to grips and understand more about exactly what has happened in some of those border towns with, with the Gaza Strip, it, it really kind of, you know, puts a lot of people in a bit of disbelief that somebody would have um, this much to say about the idea of, you know, a, a long occupation in Palestine, as she said, an apartheid um, you know, really seeming to side with the idea that a ceasefire is her priority and prerogative as opposed to denouncing Hamas. And it's been an interesting 24 hours as well, because ever since she released this statement on NDP letterhead, despite, you know, the NDP taking a very different position, both federally and provincially, uh, the leader of the provincial NDP, Mark Stiles, asked her to take it down. And she did not. 
and she has not. Instead, she's issued an apology. So it seems like there was a lot of negotiating behind the scenes that has happened. And it really leads a lot of people to question, well, you know, what kind of authority does Mart Stiles really have over uh, the NDP as a whole if she can't get an MPP to withdraw? I, I think the NDP is finding themselves in a very tricky position here, but they seem to be misaligned with where society is at currently. Let's, let's talk about those two things you brought up because they're two excellent points. Let's go to the second one first, which is the difficult spot the NDP is now going to find itself in. There are those who may support the party who also may believe in what Sarah Jama said, who is now going to look at Merritt Stiles and say, you're a censor. You don't want someone to be able to speak their mind. The flip side is... If they take the other position, they look at what Merritt Stiles says, well, it's going to look like, well, if you don't shut her down, you are soft on terrorism. It's now an impossible position to try and juggle these two things. Right. And the question is, do you appease the party or do you appease uh, the public, right? The party internally uh, may be saying to her, look, you know, we don't necessarily want Sarah Jamma to be deposed of uh, for something that, you know, some other party members might agree with. I'm not sure. Uh, but, but. You know, on the other hand, the public might look at this and say, well, wait a second, whose side are you really going to be taking in this debate? Is it uh, the, the side of, you know, Hamas or is it the side of, um, of, of Israel in, in, in this case? And I think it really puts the party in a very tricky, difficult position in terms of what do you really, what kind of a message do you want to send uh, to the public? I would also argue that Marit Stiles doesn't want to find herself in this position, right? Keep in mind, the Ford government is under RCMP investigation over the Greenbelt scandal. That is where she wants the full and absolute focus of the province to be on. Instead, we're having a debate about you know whether or not the NDP is tolerant to anti-Semitic views or not. And I think that is really not where she wants to find herself mm. at all. And it's because of a somewhat rogue NDP MPP who it, it is clear now that even Marit Stiles cannot control. So that's the other point. And look, if I were to post something on Twitter, let's take any, whatever. And my boss said, that's outrageous. That does not align with our views. Take that down. And I refuse to take that down. I'm reasonably confident. I know what would be my fate. And I'm kind of amazed when you said it too, that it looks, it, this certainly is going to send a message, maybe not the right message, but a message that Marit Stiles doesn't really have, that she's weak or that she, I don't know what the message is, but I don't think it looks like she is someone who is fully in control of her caucus. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it necessarily looks very good in the party. I mean, if, if you, if you consider where we are in terms of you know, between election cycles, right? I mean, there is a lot of time between now and 2026. So losing an NDP MPP isn't necessarily going to, uh, you know, for her caucus mean that they have less people or more people. It, it, it isn't necessarily going to matter. Um, I, you know, this, this is going to put them in a very tricky position as well, because the premier has taken a very strong stance on this. Not only has he called on like denounced what uh, Sarah Gemma has said. He's actually called for her to resign as an MPP altogether, saying there's no place for this in the Ontario legislature. So where we go from here, I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, I, I think I think the damage that will be done to the NDP brand, not just provincially, but federally as well, uh, is is going to be seen in the long run. I mean, this is now given... Um, you know, the progressive conservatives and the liberals, a chance to kind of campaign against the NDP in certain Jewish communities is saying, look, you know, an MPP sided with uh, Palestine or Hamas in this entire uh, affair. And, you know, they can raise the question about whether or not they, they, members of the public agree with that. And, and here's my very cynical conspiracy theory view of this, that um, Doug Ford knew that when he came out and demanded that she resign, that puts Merritt Stiles in a position now where if she listens to Doug Ford, that's a bad spot for her. But Doug Ford really wants Sarah Jama to remain in the NDP caucus for exactly that. Next time the election rolls around, he can point to a candidate in the party and say, see, she's still there. How's that for a conspiracy theory? Well, listen, I mean, politics is all about wedging your opponent, right? Trying to find a decision or a 
you know, a particular policy point that they, you know, they'll find to be a bit uncomfortable, right? Let's take progressive conservatives and social issues as an example, things like, uh, you know, abortion or uh, free speech or, or, you know, even, even transgender issues. It puts politicians who are looking to court the mainstream of voters in a very difficult, touchy position when that politician also has to uh, make sure they balance what the public wants versus what the extreme of their party actually wants, because you need those, you know, those members who are still part of your base. So this kind of wedging is, is you know, part of the cut and thrust of politics. I, I, I would say this. If the NDP was on the other side, they would be calling for the resignation of a minister or an MPP right away. They've, they call for the resignation of ministers for much less. So this will, you know, just put the NDP in a in a very difficult, tight spot. It is that they, yeah. they probably will be ruining this day for a very long time. That is uh, Colin DeMello. He is Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Colin, thank you for this today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML dot com.